Um, good evening. I'm Tim O'Shea, uh, Principal of the University and Convener of the Gifford Lectureship Committee and really delighted you to, wel to welcome you to um, the 2015 University of Edinburgh Lecture Series. Um, we have a, a wonderfully distinguished uh, speaker tonight, uh, Professor Jeremy Waldron, and we were just reminiscing about the lovely ceremony where we gave Jeremy an honorary degree a short while back. Jeremy is University Professor at New York University School of Law. Uh, he's continuing his Gifford Lecture Series and uh, on the theme, One Another's Equals, The Basis of Human Equality. Um, to remind you, uh, the lecture is being recorded um, and the video will shortly be available online uh, in the University Gifford website. I'm obviously not necessary to say this to the audience of the Gifford lecture. That means you do have to behave appropriately. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be there on YouTube being repeated again and again, behaving inappropriately. So appropriate behavior, please, everybody. Um, and uh, Jeremy will deliver his fifth lecture entitled Human Dignity and Our Relation to God. So please welcome Jeremy back. Thank you, Principal. Ladies and gentlemen, it's getting to be a habit, but I love being in this room and talking to this audience. Thank you very much for your fidelity through these five lectures. One more to go after this. Our theme, as I have said again and again, is equality, the sense in which humans are basically one another's equals, whatever the differences between them, and whatever the permissible and impermissible, uh, impermissibly different ways society treats them. The account of basic equality that I've offered so far in these lectures has been mainly secular in character. Been little hints here and there of religious argumentation. In Lecture 3 last Thursday and Lecture 4 yesterday, we focused mainly on natural, social, and moral characteristics and capabilities. We are trying to find what some authors have called a host property, um, a property that would be the, the host, the locus, the place of human equality, and we've talked about the sort of property that would have to be um, so we're focused mainly on social and moral characteristics, even when metaphysical elements were introduced, as they were arguably in Kant's account of our moral power, our noumenal moral powers. Uh, those are, those uh, metaphysical elements were not necessarily religious, and the same is true of what we said about Hannah Arendt and her account of natality, the possibility of human greatness in every birth and in every life that lives on the world. But all the way through, we have been aware, comfortably in my case, uncomfortably perhaps in some of your cases, of various religious themes and religious versions of the themes we have explored lurking around, waiting for our attention. And now in this lecture, this evening, is the time when attention must be paid to these elements. For religious arguments about basic human equality are very common in our tradition. It's said that we are all equal in the eyes of God. We are created in God's image, consecrated by his love, sentenced to the world, as John Locke put it, by him and about his business. We are told that God loves not only the powerful and the mighty, but the poor and the despised. And we are required, according to our 
religious beliefs, those of us who still have them, we are required to echo the equality of that love in our own dealings with each other, in our politics and in our ethics. For some of us, as I said, it seems obvious that an adequate conception of human dignity and of the equality that's predicated on that dignity is going to be rooted in an understanding of the relation of the human person to God or of the aspects of human nature that matter for God or for our relation to God. In short, it seems obvious that human dignity and human equality and human worth are going to have to be rooted in something like, I'm going to call it a theological anthropology, a theological account of what humans are like, what human nature is like. Human dignity is based on what people are really like, and a theological anthropology purports to give us our deepest and most serious account of what people are like and what is most important about them. Philosophers of a certain stripe might be inclined to dismiss all such accounts as superstitious nonsense and to say out of hand that we should pay no mind to the possibility of theological anthropology. They say we should attempt to develop our theory of equality if we want one in purely secular terms. This is motivated partly by a concern for the integrity and mutual accessibility of public reason. How can one set of believers argue for the public basis of basic equality when their audience are people who don't share any of the presuppositions of their discourse? And I'm going to talk about that right at the end of today's lecture. But it's also motivated, this dismissive attitude, by strong and by now well-established skepticism about religion, religious ideas, and religious arguments, epitomized in the work of people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, and most recently, Philip Kitcher. These um, are serious thinkers, and they believe it would be better, certainly more intellectually respectable, if we were to purge religious ideas from our um, ethics and from our philosophy. They may be right, we can't assume that they're wrong, um, but at least in the context of the Gifford lectures and the terms of Lord Gifford's endowment, we have no choice but to explore these themes this evening. And anyway, if we were to go ahead with the purge of religious ideas, it's an open question how much that purge would take with it, how much about human dignity might have to go out. We can't assume that you can simply bracket out the religious stuff and leave the rest of the ethics intact. Yeah? Be, it could well be like tearing a page out of a paperback novel. When you tear one page out, you wreck the binding, and several hundred other pages might eventually litter the floor as well. So one thing that we ought to be concerned, and one thing that Dawkins and Harris and Dennett and Kitcher ought to be concerned with is how much of traditional ethics, how much of our conceptions of human dignity and human equality would go out the window if we were to follow their purgative program. And indeed, some of the people who take this line, I'm thinking of people like Steven Pinker. Do you remember he wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature about reduction of violence in human affairs? They have been quite willing to say, yeah, they would quite like to, you, to lose the notion of human dignity as well as the notion of our relation to God. Dignity, says Pinker, in an article in the New Republic called The Stupidity of Dignity, published in 2008, is a subjective, squishy notion hardly up to the heavyweight moral demands assigned to it. 
So some of these thinkers might be quite happy with the possible consequences. Purge God from our vocabulary, purge some of these ethical elements from our vocabulary as well. Both sides ought to be interested in this. Both sides ought to be interested in how interconnected these, these ideas are. About 10 years ago, I wrote a book on John Locke's political philosophy and on the Christian egalitarian foundations of his theory. And at the end of the book, I made the following observation. I think it's written out on your um, uh, song sheet there, so you can hum along here. The shape of the concept of basic equality now may be inexplicable without reference to the religious traditions that fashioned it. That may be true. Some will say that modern egalitarians have simply given the lie to those like John Locke who claim it is impossible to commit oneself to or work with or make great sacrifices for something of this shape without a commitment to the forces that shaped it. And maybe that is right. It is, as Locke himself said, no diminishing to revelation, but reason now gives its suffrage too to the truths that revelation has discovered. Even if talk of human dignity had to be pioneered by religious thinkers, maybe the optimistic story is once that pioneering has, has been done, we can follow human dignity where it leads, whether or not we are think of ourselves as responding to God or not. But then I... I indicated some reason for pessimism. I said whether this concept of human equality, curiously shaped as it is from reason's autonomous point of view, and I hope over the past three or four lectures I've given you an indication of how curiously shaped the idea of human equality is, whether that can retain its shape under the various pressures it faces and how haphazardly it will grow once it takes on a life of its own is of course another matter. Maybe the notion of humans as one another's equals will survive, or maybe it will begin to fall apart under pressure without the presence of the religious conception that shaped it. As we have seen, it's a very complex and elaborate idea, and there's no reason to suppose that the complexity of human equality is not matched by its fragility when it and we are left to our own devices. Maybe if we hadn't had the religious traditions, we would have a differently shaped conception. Yeah? And it's possible that the conception that we have now will change its shape and change its character without the religious support. That was not an argument, it was a sort of a, a worry or a warning. And I'm going to kind of try to make sense of it today. It does indicate a couple of questions that we have to ask. Can there be a religious argument for basic equality? which is a special case of the question, can there be a religious argument for anything? And secondly, can the gist of that argument be detached from its religious scaffolding if it's been built up by religious thinkers? Can the gist of the argument then be detached from its religious scaffolding? The other possibility is maybe human dignity and human equality can be defended and articulated perfectly well without any of the superstition. There are many people good-hearted people who believe in human equality who do not share this religious outlook. So some say it's possible to elaborate an account of human dignity without this religious association, whereas others are prepared or happy to throw out the entire package. So there's a whole range of possibilities here that I want to um, explore. It's not entirely clear what 
or how the religious element is supposed to contribute. One possibility is that a prescriptive principle of human equality, treat one another as equals, is simply the subject of God's divine command. Maybe that's what people are envisaging. God's sitting around, slow day in heaven, uh, so he poses this challenge, this uh, commandment to humans to treat one another. I know you're all different, but treat one another as as equals. Simple fiat. Or slightly more seriously, God may simply have conferred a dignity like a special sort of medal on all human beings. No reason in particular, he's just done it. The psalmist asks in Psalm 8, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And God's answer might be, no reason. No reason. So it's possible that we could be talking about arbitrary fiat. And sometimes when people imagine, especially people who have no religion, imagine what religious arguments are like, they imagine some sort of divine command theory of that arbitrary, voluntaristic sort. And sometimes that determination not to provide a reason, not to specify any feature of humanity in virtue of which we are one another's equals, is done in order to solve some of the problems that we're going to talk about on Thursday, about human disability. Because people want to say sometimes that humans retain their dignity and their status as equals even though they lack some of the properties because at least they have the medal of God's commandment attached to their chests. Alternatively, and much more seriously, maybe it is simply something about our created nature, but about our created nature, something about us as created that grounds our basic equality. We talk, I have talked various times in these lectures about the doctrine of humans created in the image of God. That's supposed to be something about us. Still has God as a reference, but it's supposed to be the way we have been created. We have been created with attributes that enable us to echo God in certain ways and be capable of fellowship with God in certain ways or perhaps to be like icons, uh, maintaining, as it were, the sacred presence of God, revealing the sacred presence of God uh, on earth. At any rate, maybe there is something about our created nature which grounds a non-arbitrary basic equality and this something may be discernible by reason Or maybe it can be discernible only by divine authority and insight, but at least in this case, God would be having insight into something about the nature, the anthropology of this creature that he has created. So we have to to think of all of these possibilities. And the spirit in which I want to think about this, I hope is a spirit of some humility. You know, this time in the 21st century, all of us have to have some thought in the back of our minds that Dawkins and Kitcher and Harris and Dennett may be right. And this may be intellectually disreputable. At any rate, we have to make the most reputable case that can be made uh, for the religious approach, facing squarely the difficulties that may approach, not in the hope of converting Richard Dawkins. Yeah? Maybe there's no chance of that but at least in the, in, in the hope that we can produce something sensible, at least on our own terms, something that is not evasive or special pleading. So that's what I'm going to try, try to explore. Some people have argued 
that it's religious thinking that needs the support of moral thinking, not the other way around. Some have argued that moral ideas like human dignity and so on come first, and then we check our religion or choose our religion according to whether it co coincides with or supports the moral positions we're inclined to take. And these days, with cafeteria-style selection of religions, many people choose their religion on that basis, but it's not just a fact about Western liberalism. Immanuel Kant, in the groundwork to the metaphysics of morals, said, even the Holy One of the Gospels must first be compared with our idea of moral perfection before one can recognize them as holy. Where do we get the concept of God as the highest good? We begin with the notion of the highest good, which we arrive at by reason. And then we bring that to our religious ideas to bolster it or to certify it as a religion worth believing in. Ronald Dworkin, who was my colleague and mentor and friend for over 40 years, wrote in his penultimate book, Justice for Hedgehogs, whose ultimate book was called Religion Without God, but his, in his penultimate book, Justice for Hedgehogs, in 2012, he said, no divine authority can provide a ground for ethical ideals or moral, moral rights, because once you're confronted with the notion of a powerful spirit, you need to certify to yourself whether this is a demonic spirit or a good spirit, and you can't do that unless you already have intact in your armory a set of moral criteria and moral, moral uh, ideas. So it's the same view. We, the Holy One must be compared with our morality, not the other way around. We arrive at the idea of human dignity first, and it's on the basis of that we say on Sunday that God is good. And then there are other possibilities, possibilities I mentioned in the very first of these lectures. From a religious point of view, we know that some theologians have been opposed to what I've called basic equality. I mentioned in lecture one the notorious arguments of a distinguished Anglican priest and teacher of ethics, Hastings Rashdow, writing at the beginning of the 20th century, countenancing a sort of philosophical racism, saying, talking about the possibility that sooner or later the lower well-being, it may ultimately be the very existence of countless Chinamen or Negroes, must be sacrificed so that a higher life is possible for a much smaller number of white men. This passage that was, to which my attention was drawn by an old friend, Vinit Hatsar, um, many years ago. This was a form of early 20th century Anglican racism. And the Anglicans have not been alone in this. Uh, there was all sorts of scriptural citations for racism and segregation in the United States. And we know, of course, about the endemic association of Christian doctrine, Muslim doctrine, Jewish doctrine, with ideas about the subordination of women and the quite radical inequality between men and women. All of that is there. And it can't be dismissed out of hand. We are told, we are required to believe that the ethics laid down by our religion, by uh, Christ, or in the tradition of the Hebrew scriptures, that those traditions may be disconcerting. There may be hard sayings. There may be stuff that we have to great difficulty in accepting with the mindset of human dignity and human equality that we bring to the religion. I have uh, a couple of former colleagues from 
University of California at Berkeley, Jack Coons and Patrick Brennan, who wrote a book called By Nature Equal, could have been the title of this series of lectures. And they said, you know, you wouldn't expect John Rawls to begin with a notion that certain people are privileged or certain people are excluded. But there's no telling what religion will begin with. That's the thing about religion, it's strange. It's strange and there's no telling where it will take you if you take it seriously. So I want to be sure to include these misgivings as well in our um, account. So we're going to end up with something like, and I've drawn a little picture here, you have no idea how long it took me to draw this, uh, for the handout, a little two-by-two two matrix. That people may believe in equality or they may not believe in equality, and they may believe in God or they may not believe in God, and so there's at least four possible positions that might be taken there. As far as I can tell, I put John Locke in cell number one. I put John Rawls, who lost his faith during the Second World War, in cell number two. I put Hastings Rashdow in cell number three, and I'm inclined to suggest that Steven Pinker and Peter Singer and others are in cell number four, but I'm willing to be persuaded out of that. Okay, you see, you see the, the, um, the shape there of the possibilities. Sometimes I've talked as though we want and need and crave and hope for a religious account of basic equality. Why? Why? Well, it has to do with some of the stuff I said yesterday about the hard, hard work that basic equality has to do. I mentioned Joshua Berman's suggestion in his excellent book um, on biblical equality that a transcendent property, a religious property, was needed to ground human equality because all non-transcendent properties were held in various degrees. I said on last Thursday and also on Monday that I didn't think this was a good reason for invoking religious authority, not to mention the fact that many religious properties may be held in various degrees. Image of God. Some of us present a more blurred image than others. And certainly in Christian theology, the suggestion that the image of God in human beings has varied both from the prelapsarian to the lapsed state dominated by original sin when we are more the image of a worm or of evil than we are the image of God. Or the image of God in Jesus Christ's humanity is supposedly different from the image of God in an original person. And we talked yesterday about giving the benefit of these doctrines to tyrants and genocidal killers People want to say Hitler was created in the image of God. It seems to me obvious that we're going to have the same difficulties about differences of degree, the same challenge to come up with a range property that will encompass a wide array of differences of degree, whether we're talking about transcendent religious properties or natural properties like human reason. So what would be a good or respectable way of motivating the search for a religious account? Well, possibly some of the other things I mentioned yesterday. First, we know we have to be looking for an ultimate value. Basic equality sounds like there shouldn't be anything underneath it. But in my experience, whenever you go into a basement, there's always a sub-basement that's holding up the floor. On these. If I can tell a mean story about Isaiah Berlin who once made the suggestion that we believe in the basic equality of human beings for utilitarian reasons. And everyone said, that can't be true. 
right? Because utilitarianism is partly informed by the idea of the basic equality of human beings, everybody to count for one, nobody for more than one, so this would be a question-begging belief. As you go deeper and deeper, the number of moral bases that you can adduce for one of these beliefs becomes smaller and smaller because they're all at the intermediate or higher level stages. So if we're looking for an ultimate value, maybe we have to go at rock bottom to something that transcends the array of moral positions that are stacked up on top of the foundational position. Or yesterday I said that defending basic equality is not just a matter of coming up with some suitably shaped property that all humans share. The property that we base equality on has to be commensurate, has to be adequate to the broad and comprehensive work that human equality has to do, because it has to do work in politics, it has to do work in justice, it has to do work on human rights, it has to do work on human dignity, it has to do work on our calculations of the general good and on our sensitivity to each other's needs and interests. We need a broad concept. And it may be thought again that since religion is interested in everything, and God is interested in every little thing and interested not only in what we do but how we do it, then maybe a religious quality will be needed to give a comprehensive grounding for human dignity and human equality to do the broad work that it's required to do. And also, I said yesterday, I mean, partly what I'm doing here is just adding a religious gloss to things that I have said already. Also, I said yesterday that the basis of human equality has to be robust, it has to be strong, it has to be sufficiently powerful, not only to displace the psychological variables ranged against it, people's preference for themselves, or the members of their families, or the members of their nations, against any interest in humans in general, but it has to be morally robust also to trump various moral principles that seem sensible and seem to have moral bona fides of their own. We talked yesterday about, on the one hand, you have the urge to torture, detain, and assassinate terrorists. On the other hand, you have to have something that's capable of stopping those entirely sensible urges in their tracks and say, no, this is something created in the image of God as well. Right? So that we have to have a robust and maybe nothing but God and hellfire could have that sort of robust stance. That's a possibility. Something I didn't mention yesterday. The basis of human equality has to be not only ultimate and comprehensive and normatively powerful, it also has to have a certain resilience to being modified or rethought. It can't be conceived as something we just make up. It has to present itself as objective, and I think a fairly special sense of objectivity. When I wrote uh, 10 years ago an article on Christian attitudes towards torture, what I referred to there was a possibility of thinking about the rule against torture as something that stands implacably in our way, in the way of torture, without being amenable to being rethought or put once, once more back into the mill of reflective equilibrium to accommodate our contrary intuitions. The position, whether it's that position, or I think 
positions about basic human dignity are to be understood and not to be understood as something we can tamper with to, assume, to ensure its reflective equilibrium with other moral positions we are reluctant to abandon. It's not to be understood as something that we have, so to speak, formulaic control over, like the control that we have over the drafting of a statute. It's supposed to be something that we listen to and receive. We don't bow down in front of it, but it's not something we are to approach or chisel away at or read down, to use the lawyer's phrase that is sometimes describing the way judges reinterpret problematic provisions. I suggest that perhaps if we think of a position as commanded by divine law, we have to understand ourselves as more passive, more passively receptive than that. I mean, I don't want to go on too, too long in this frame because it's not entirely, I'm not entirely comfortable with it, since I myself seem to have been manipulating everything and introducing all sorts of strange apparatus in these discussions. And I did talk about people like Hannah Arendt and Margaret MacDonald, who see human equality as a decision we make, a commitment we have adopted, rather than a response to any fact about human nature. I want to say about that, that even when that view is in play, nevertheless the position that they are taking is a position that is responsive, again, to what seems to them to be an implacable necessity, not something that we can just play with or manipulate at will. I'm sorry for all this preliminary stuff up to page 16 on the, the notes of a 30-page lecture, but another preliminary point. Whatever its basis, the principle of basic equality has mainly secular work to do. It does its work in the world, here on earth, among us. Our interest in basic equality, or the work that it has to do, is basically not eschatological, though that doesn't mean it can't have eschatological foundations. Its work is in political morality and law and the theory of rights and social justice. That's where it's going to be doing its work. Hence the thought, I suppose, that we ought to confine ourselves to secular foundations. But even if we don't adopt that constraint, we must still match, uh, face up to the possibility of a sort of mismatch between secular orientation and religious foundations. Why, for example, would a religion have any interest in human equality. The question is only partly rhetorical. Religions have other concerns. They're concerned with worship, with creed, with sin and redemption and the hereafter. Are equal dignity and basic human equality necessarily on that list? Can we be certain of that? Our agendas are not necessarily religious agendas. Our, our religions may teach us to be preoccupied with other things that we weren't preoccupied with independently. That's the thing about religion. We believers almost instinctively associate religion with morality, and we assume that our deepest moral convictions are sustained by equally, if not more, profound convictions about God. Why? If our morality, for all its sublimity, is ultimately a worldly entity, something of and for this world, our religious beliefs may have little interest in it, little interest in the principles, virtues, and values that we have made up for our sojourn here on earth. Augustine, in the City of God, once remarked about theories <coughs> that we would call theories of self-determination. Augustine says, we are all dying anyway. What does it matter 
who a dying man is ruled by. We are all dying anyway. What does it matter whether these decrepit dying mechanisms and their brief pilgrimage on earth are one another's equals or not? Why would we be concerned about that? So there's the possibility that religion is not particularly interested in these things that are preoccupying us in the 2015 Gifford Lectures. Or maybe if Christianity is interested, it's been mainly interested in equality in the life of the church, equality among those who are baptized into the faith. You know the famous passage from Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither, um, uh, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither man nor woman, for all are one in the body of Christ. But if you read the passage that precedes that, it refers to the unity of the congregation of the baptized. It's not any general thesis about human dignity. So maybe there uh, is nothing, nothing here for us to find. One way in which religious thinkers might proceed in this matter of Religious equality is particularly infuriating, I believe, to their opponents, and that is the bare citation of scriptural or ecclesiastical authority. Yeah? We tell the creation story in our descent from common parents. We cite the Mishnah Sanhedrin to the effect that one man alone was brought forth at the time of creation in order that thereafter no one should have the right to say to another, my father was your, greater than your father. Yeah? We have these scriptural passages and the glasses that have been put on them. We have this doctrine of each person created in the image of God, about 15 or 20 words in Genesis. We have the Psalms asking, what is man that thou art mindful of him? We have the prophets concerned for the poorest and for social justice, especially Amos and Isaiah. We have Jesus concerned for the poorest in his ministry and the apparent privileging of the lowly and the despised and the parable of the sheep and goats, and talking about ministering to the least of these, my brethren. And we have these passages on equality in Christian community. We can find all this and pull them out, and I guess it's called Bible bashing, um, coming up with chapter and verse from 1 Corinthians or the Psalms or Genesis or Exodus that seem to support the view that all humans are at base one another's equals and that our religion does have a deep interest in this. And from a religious point of view, we have to take this stuff seriously. We can't ignore it. But even from a slightly detached point of view, this sort of support can seem contingent, thin, a matter of happenstance. What if some other form of words had been used? What if some other doctrine or passage or book had been canonized? An awful lot of things, a great variety of things are said and supported in the scriptures. Polygamy, child sacrifice. You know, we've pulled out the image of God stuff and a, a few bare passages on equality. That's not a religious case for equality. So it will not do just to cite these sorts of points or any subset of them and call them a religious foundation. We're not looking for some pieces of paper that we can nail onto the underside of our convictions. What substantial reason, then, might there be 
for religious beliefs to have a bearing on this issue of basic equality. Well, I've listed on the handout around two-thirds of the way down under heading five a set of substantial religious themes. I'm not entirely sure that what I'm going to talk about matches exactly the labeling there because these have been works in progress. But for example, there may be settled opposition in the great religions to real or imagined forms of established inequality if they involve anything like the setting up of idols or false gods, human demigods, and so on. There may be a general concern about the idolatry that tends to come with radical inequality. If you follow the, the writings of Tom Wright, as I do, his concern about Paul's interest in the idolatry of emperor worship in Rome is, is partly a matter of this. There is the worry that the celebration of inequality may crowd out humility and penitence in certain quarters. There is a the thought that a belief in inequality of the sort we found in the work of Hastings Rashtal, for example, may be incompatible with charity and concern for others, especially the worst off, that all the religions of the book command. Inequalities involving intellectual excellence may be denounced inasmuch as religion involves forms of faith, belief, and insight that do not necessarily validate or draw on what the world regards as wisdom, maybe foolishness from the perspective of the world. Purported inequalities involving moral excellence, how proud we are that we are not Nazis. The righteous versus the sinners may founder on the base of some equivalent to the doctrine of original sin or moral humility that we must bring. The great religions with which we are familiar, this is a, a B, C, D, E, F. This is a sixth position. The great religions with which we are familiar encourage us to see beyond ourselves and our own selfish interests to see something like ourselves and the other in any human other, that's the point. And I think this is important to see God in our seeing ourselves in the other person. I sometimes thought that phenomenologically, one of the ways to arrive at a conception of God is simply a determination to see oneself in the person of every other person that you confront. All religions posit the specialness of the human person as a possible subject of faith and redemption. They sometimes express this in terms of sacredness, in terms of image of God, in terms of God's love, unconditional, in terms of endowed human dignity. It's not implausible to hold that the specialness of the human person in these eyes, in these accounts, uh, obtains equally for each person. The same story, if you like, of creation Faith, sin, redemption being available to be told about each or every one of us. There is some sense that our freedom, our free will, and our power of world-making choice is of massive significance and best understood under religious auspices. And there is some sense that our destiny, the weight of our glory, as C.S. Lewis would say, the great peroration that he has at the end of his book, The, uh, the Weight of Glory, or the sort of thing that Justice McLean cited in the Dred Scott case when he said about the African-American whose status was in question. This is not a chattel. This is somebody who bears the impress of his maker and is destined 
to an endless existence. That sense of destiny may be important. These ideas seem to me to be likely candidates separately or together if we did want to develop a religious grounding for basic equality. If we did, it would be somewhere in the ballpark. Not in the scripture that we cite, although scripture is important in the elaboration of these things, but somewhere where we would reflect on points along these lines. Of these ideas that I've just recited to you, the first five are kind of negative. They don't establish basic equality, but they warn us against various modes or consequences of its denial. Point A warned us against human idolatry. Point B against arrogance and self-sufficiency. Point C against the inhumane social ethical consequences of a belief of human inequality. So there may be concern to all real or imagined forms of basic inequality if they involve any sort of setting up of idols, false gods, human demigods, and so on. These may be warnings, negative points, I suppose, uh, warnings about what might follow from a preoccupation with inequality. In the Anglican 39 articles, when there is reference to the doctrine of predestination, it suggests this is to be handled very, very carefully because it can certainly lead to terrible ethical consequences if people become infatuated with the thought of their own predestination. I'm thinking of the confessions of a justified sinner and, and so on. But that reveals to us that just because these warnings have to be issued, that doesn't make the underlying doctrines of inequality false. It just means they have to be handled handled very carefully. You'll recall my distinction between continuous equality, which mainly concerns of asserting a negative and affirmative themes of distinctively human dignity uh, in the earlier lectures. Theories of inequality mostly come to us retail, not extolling inequality as such, but proclaiming the importance of particular bases of inequality like superior and inferior wisdom or superior and inferior power or virtue. One contribution that a religion like Christianity or Judaism may make is to cast doubt on the importance of any of the alleged bases of inequality. Right? And that's what I see going on in those suggestions about differential moral virtue versus original sin, differential uh, intellectual excellence versus the foolishness of legitimate faith. So negative points like these are important in our thinking. But the last four or five items that I have mentioned on that list are important, I think, for the development of an affirmative basis of human equality. We might affirm the importance of the narrative, as I said, of sin, redemption, faith in the life of each person. And I want to come back to that theme of narrative movement um, in a moment, we may want to mention the capacities that we have to reason in what, whatever humility through to a sense of our duty and our ability to act on that, giving a religious gloss to the Kantian idea. We may want to refer to the Lockean suggestion that we at least need a modicum of rationality to know our creator and to be able to apprehend what he requires of us. 
No great intellectual power is required for that, said Locke. Humans might vary enormously in their intellectual abilities, but, said Locke, it yet secures their great concernments that they have light enough to lead them to the knowledge of their maker. They have light enough to lead them to the knowledge of their maker and to the sight of their own duties. The candle that is set up in us shines bright enough for all our purposes. Yeah? So that sense of knowledge that one is one of God's special servants, given the gift of knowledge of his uh, existence and his purposes, is something that may be an affirmative ground of human equality. And you can imagine developing other similar ideas as well. Our capacity to love. Our capacity to echo God's love in our love for each other. Or simply the broad idea of the sanctity of the human person, each of us unimaginably and incomparably sacred because of the fellowship that we are destined for, have an idea of an array of possibilities like this, not dissimilar, not dissimilar to the array mentioned on last Thursday and yesterday when we're talking about various range properties conceived in the uh, tradition. There are other possibilities as well. One thing that is worth asking and answering, and I mentioned this very briefly yesterday, do we have to choose among these? It seems to me that one important point um, that a religious thinker might want to insist is that many of these capacities, many of these properties, whether they are intellectual or moral or affective or um, uh, voluntaristic, complement each other feed in as parts of a single account, particularly if we regard the account that is to be given of each of us in this tradition not as static, but as something that has movement to it, some dynamic structure to it. These ideas may be, each of them is complex in itself, but they may form parts of a complex whole that is um, important in our thinking about equality. I think sometimes our thinking about the basis of human equality has been way too static, as though we were looking for a single static feature of human life on which equality was based, rather than contemplating the possibility that we will be looking at a variegated cluster of properties operating together over time in the life of each person. Because I have stressed, and I will stress this again in my final lecture, that it is extremely important to understand that when we're talking about the basic equality of human beings or the dignity of human beings, we are attributing that dignity to whole lives rather than to momentary time slices of the human beings we are talking about. Humans live their lives over time. They grow, they decay, they grow in faith, they grow in confidence in their moral abilities, they grow in their intellectual abilities, they decline in their moral and intellectual abilities. And the, what we accord equality to, what we accord dignity to in these accounts is to human lifetimes, not to any privileged moments or subsets of those lifetimes. If that's true, then we have to have consciousness of the way in which the properties and capacities that we're talking about change over time, 
are exercised over time, are affected at one time by the way that they have been exercised at another time, and as I said, interlock with each other as perception and cognition work with moral power and moral decision making. And all of that works with some account of human knowledge and human love to produce a narrative that matches in its longevity the trajectory the trajectory of a human life. I, don't, I think we should not be buying into the account that the basis of human equality is either simple or static. It's likely to be a complex and it's likely to be a dynamic account. Religious accounts of basic equality will naturally emphasize this because they are interested in a dynamic, of, a dynamic narrative of sin, redemption, and so on. They are interested in a story that can be told about each individual rather than a simple description of each individual. And this is one of those ways in which I believe the religious account can actually illuminate the possibilities for a secular account as well, because there's no reason why a John Rawls or somebody else who is a secular believer in human equality shouldn't find the relevant range property in a narrative rather than in a simple static description. Moreover, what I said yesterday about sparkle, it seems to me the sparkling scintillation back and forth between concern for certain capacities that humans have and concern for the way in which those capacities are exercised. Sometimes we're interested in one, sometimes we're interested in the other, sometimes there's scintillation or sparkle back and forth. But when we're doing the work that human equality has to do, we tend to be mainly interested in the potential and the capacities. Whereas for other purposes like judging or appraising merit, we're interested in the way the capacities have been exercised. And I believe that notion of sparkle works particularly in, um, in the kind of narrative accounts that I have been giving in which we have our attention drawn back and forth for various complexes of moral tasks that have to be performed, have to be performed in the... Um, in our assessment of the lives of any given set of individuals. In all of this, what I've been trying to avoid is the doctrine that we are looking for some small, monolithic, highly polished, unitary soul or soul-like substance, which would be the basis of human equality. We're not. We're looking for something messy and dynamic, complicated, matching uh, the importance of one property with the importance of other properties, matching the importance of certain properties with certain capabilities and with the exercise of those capabilities, not all at once, but over time. And I think it's very important that in the religious context we emphasize that, but there's no reason at all if we were preferring a non-religious account of equality that we wouldn't use the same sense of complexity and the same sense of sparkle. <coughs> I said at the beginning of this lecture, and I guess I've just repeated it as well, that there are many people in the world who believe in human dignity and believe in human equality who do not have a scintilla of religious belief or who won't acknowledge a scintilla of religious belief. These good-hearted people will have little interest in the quest that has been pursued in this lecture. 
because the account that has been given here is emphatically religious. And some people will not see or recognize anything powerful in the considerations that have been mentioned or discussed this evening. Is it offensive to air a religious conception of human equality in public? Is it offensive to introduce these religious elements into discussions in public? For those who believe in them, equality and equal dignity are matters of public concern. They are matters to be discussed in the public forum. We ought to talk about human dignity and the rights that it is supposed to support. We ought to talk about human equality and the view of justice that it's supposed to support and the view of the general good that it's supposed to support and the view of political democracy that it's supposed to support. These are important issues of public concern shared in the community of believers and non-believers. Human dignity with its egalitarian implications is put forward as a cardinal value of social and political life. For example, in Article 1 of the Basic Law of Germany, and it's widely regarded as the foundation of human rights. In the United States, it's a constitutional value, though not one that you find in the constitutional text, but basic equality is certainly a constitutional value in the US and the 14th Amendment, and in some countries, respect for human dignity is regarded as an element of public order. Some would therefore say that this stuff is public property for public discussion in a well-disciplined set of forums accessible to all citizens, and the introduction of religious reasoning into that forum represents an attempt to hijack it by some people whose reasons cannot possibly make contact with the beliefs and convictions of their fellow citizens. The ideal of public reason on this account, and this is put forward by John Rawls and others, is that it is disrespectful to talk about the Holy Ghost or to talk about God's uh, destiny for us or the image of God to people to whom those phrases mean nothing. Yeah? And if I propose to vote on that basis, I'm kind of not justifying my vote to other people in terms that other people can apprehend. So there is a, a, a deep concern about the introduction of religious or metaphysical ideas of any sort into the deliberations of public life. So some would say that any public analysis of human dignity and human equality must take place under the discipline of public reason. And if the discipline of public reason forbids or frowns on the introduction of religious or metaphysical views into public discourse, as John Rawls has argued in his book Political Liberalism, then it would seem to follow that an account of the type that I have been presented here should be withdrawn, and it should not be a public lecture in Edinburgh, but if need be, it can be confined to some congregation of some church or synagogue somewhere. I don't accept that for two reasons. First, even if one accepts the strictures of Rawlsian public reason, it cannot follow, surely, that we must hold our tongues altogether on the question of religious foundations or that it is always and in every context wrong to look into that topic. The issue of what is appropriately cited in liberal argument is one thing. The issue of the implications of our own religious faith is another. And also to the extent that the Rawlsian account of public reason makes use of the idea of an overlapping consensus, 
overlapping on human dignity from a variety of points of view. Each of those points of view has to be allowed the opportunity to articulate its way to that consensus, the route that it follows to that overlapping position. I believe that the Rawlsian public reason, as it were, distorts as well as truncates public discussion, and that it's better and, in the end, more respectful for people to call things as they see them, giving the fullest possible account, bearing the fullest possible witness to the grounds on which they adhere to publicly important positions, among which the foundations of human dignity and basic equality are likely to be most prominent. The Rawlsians say this is disrespectful to our fellow citizens for we are proposing as grounds for public principles that will impact their lives, perhaps coercively, considerations that they cannot make sense of. But the extent to which the story that I've been giving this afternoon cannot be made sense of by a secular audience is often exaggerated and the significance of that audience's incomprehension is often distorted. Fact is that the public world we inhabit as theologian Robin Lovin has put it, is a world in which those who know and love God are mixed up with those who love only themselves in complicated ways that do not allow us to separate them out. Those who know and love God themselves are a mixed bunch with varying degrees of understanding, and those who pursue secular understandings are a mixed bunch as well, more or less distant from, more or less able to understand religious conceptions that they have left behind in their own lives. The whole thing is a bit of a melange. The whole thing is mixed up in various ways. And we talk not with an undifferentiated public, but back and forth with various people in various settings. It may not always be realistic to expect comprehension, let alone conviction, when one offers an account along the lines that I have done this afternoon, but bits and pieces of it may be understood here and there. And people should be curious as to what we can make of the religious bases that have been adduced for human equality. Whether we like it or not, they have been adduced. There are these traditions. They are worth exploring, and they're worth exploring maybe with a skeptical eye, but worth exploring nonetheless. And finally, one can at least bear some witness to the extent and depth of one's own understanding. The key to the matter, and here I'll close, is that for those who have inquired into these matters of theological anthropology. Some have found the deepest and most troubling or the deepest and most inspiring account of what humans are like. Okay? Other people who have inquired into those matters have found nothing. But the members of the first group have at least an obligation to speak and speak out about what they have found on these, on these matters. For those who accept that and are convinced by it, nothing is more important in this debate and it will seem to them that there is no choice but to invoke it in our discussions of equality. For suppose we are moved by the scalar differences of degree that we see among human beings. Before we act on that, we want to be sure that we have heard everything that there is to be said about basic human equality. And conversely, suppose we are transfixed by the apparent equality in these more important respects that I have spoken about uh, in last Thursday's lecture and yesterday's lecture, and we are counseling people to ignore for the time being the massive differences of virtue, 
the massive differences of evil, the massive differences of cognitive and affective powers that exist among people. We're counseling people to ignore that and just focus on the underlying capacities. There we want to be sure that we've heard everything, not just some of the things that could be said on the other side. So it seems to me the general strategy of everybody calling it as they see it and giving the fullest and most honest account that they can give to their fellow citizens is a superior one rather than a strategy of self-censorship in advance about a matter this important. These issues of human dignity and human equality, of the equality of basic human worth, are supposed to go to the foundation of what's most important about human beings. And people must be allowed to say out loud and to each other in public gatherings what they think are most important about human beings and how to get at the most important truths that there are there. So for those reasons, I make no apology for uh, giving this uh, quite religious account uh, this evening. That's it. Thank you very much indeed. Very good. So we're going to start the question and answer now. Who would like uh, to pose the first question? Please, could we have the microphone there? Do remember to identify yourself and ask a short question. Anna. Hello. Oh, yes, it is now. Okay. Uh, my name's Janet Devine. I'm an associate tutor at the education school here at the university. Um, I love your idea of sparkle, and I leapt in quick because I knew everybody would want to ask you questions. Um, it seems to me that the world is moving towards, or rather away from, a reductionist uh, pattern of thinking at the moment in all sorts of fields, not just uh, this one, but physics and so on and so forth as well. Um, I was just wondering... If this is slightly naught in a way, but Amartya Sen is writing about capacities and functionings. It seems to me in a very similar way, and I wondered if you would like to comment on that, because his background, of course, is not Western imperial Christianity, it's the Orient and everything else. Yes, thank you very much. Um, the economist Amartya Sen and also uh, the philosopher Martha Nussbaum have done tremendous work on suggesting that when we think about the subject matter of justice, we ought to be concerned not with the amount of currency in people's pockets or the wealth that they own or their incomes necessarily, but the extent to which they are supported in the development of crucial capabilities. Ab absolutely right. And they think that's a sensible approach to justice. And I agree with them. I have to say that the use that I'm making of the idea of certain key capabilities is slightly different, not incompatible with that. They are interested in the capacities that must be developed if people are to have good lives. I'm interested in the capacities that, as it were, whose presence in people's lives makes them fundamentally one another's equals. Those are two different ideas. They're not incompatible with one another. These are complementary. Ah. Very good. Next question. If you have the... Very good. Uh, I'm Zenon Bankowski um, from, from the law school. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't here for the, f for the first week. I, I was on holiday, but um, <laughs> in, in the sun. Yes. Um, but I'd, the question I'd like to ask, I'm not sure whether it has been covered in a way, is you, you mentioned yesterday someone asking a question about won't humans do their entire job just being human? And 
it seemed to me that at least part of what I've been hearing and what you've said, you've said before in these lectures, that there are two th threads going on. First of all, there's a sense in which why do we want equality or what's the point of equality? And then you have to understand what the notion of equality does, but still you make a decision to have equality. At the same time, there's the idea of human equality. But the question that begs or looks at is what counts as being human? Yes. And in some respects, the second thing about what, what the, the, the first thing about what is equality or how does it work sometimes rests on um, what counts as being human. Yes. And at some stages, of course, both will start changing and moving the other around. And it seems to me that, again, you're looking forward to the to, to Thursday's lecture about what you call hard cases or soft cases. It seems to me, in some respects, of course, they're the liminal cases and they're the normal cases because it's in those sorts of cases that our notions of humanity and things start shifting and moving around because we're yes. looking at people of things on the verges and differences of, of, of humanity. Yes, I think all of that is exactly right. I envy you your holiday last week. But um, I do think that we have to pay some attention to this question of what counts as being human. We're going to do it, though, in two phases. One is to try to figure out whether we can say anything for the, <coughs> to begin with, about the, the whole range of cases that we are hoping to encompass. Is it just the fact that we're human? We've had a, a running argument with a member of the um, audience over the last four or five lectures just on this point. Is it just the fact of being human, belonging to the species, being one of us? Or can we talk about, in general, what makes us human, or what our special status is based on, what capacities, what capabilities, what human capabilities matter for these purposes? I think that's phase one of the discussion. Phase two are what you call the liminal cases, and I don't believe we come in through these cases, but we have to pay a hell of a lot more attention to them than political philosophers have paid, to people who on any account are living lives of great um, deprivation. I don't just mean material deprivation, but due to the failure of certain capacities or capabilities that most humans share, failures of cognition or language or moral apprehension or ability to love people who are profoundly disabled. And we have to figure out what to say about persons who are in that situation and relate it to the first phase, which is our broad understanding of um, what is human. I believe that account has to be a complicated one, which is why I'm going to be devoting 50 minutes to it um, on Thursday. Very complicated and thoughtful. And it has to be complemented by some suggestion that humans can live a variety of different lives, and there's no telling what kind of life a human, a human will live as well. What I wanted to resist then is, is, is the sense that we run those two accounts together, and that we haven't given our full account of what is human until we've given our account of the liminal cases. I believe that's a mistake, and I'll try and justify that tomorrow. Thank you. I have a question. <coughs> Uh, Malcolm Anderson, uh, former colleague of uh, Jeremy's in this university. Uh, Jeremy, I don't doubt that the very powerful arguments can be uh, derived from uh, the religious traditions, particularly the Christian traditions on human dignity and equality. But how do you cope with the argument that the 
the practice of the main monotheistic religions has been profoundly inegalitarian yeah. at all sorts of levels, with the division between believers and unbelievers, men and women, church, ecclesiastical organization, and so on. Right. So how do you deal with the argument that the predominance of the inspiration derived from religious tradition is inegalitarian and not in accord with general human dignity right. for the whole human race. Right. No, one has to face up to that very seriously. Um, part of what I was trying to do in the first part of the lecture was to acknowledge that. Acknowledge, first of all, the doctrinal possibility that this stuff about human equality may be out of order from a religious point of view. But secondly, we have to deal with, well, never mind the doctrine. The doctrine may be fine if you put it in a glass case and uh, worship it every so often, but the reality has been that the uh, positions built up allegedly on these foundations have been profoundly egalitarian. And I don't want to deny that. It's yet another indication of the precariousness, fragility of the possibility of a religious foundation. One of the things that I wanted to do by spending so much time on the, the wind-up this afternoon was to make sure that that was duly acknowledged. Not only that there may not be such foundations or they may have no intellectual respectability, but they may be the sort of foundations for something that goes nowhere. And that even on the home ground of the religions themselves, you find massive inequality, let alone the inequalities that they preach and ratify and support sometimes with a fist of iron or fire um, in, in, in their lives as well. So there is not a whole lot in the practice of the great religions to inspire a belief in human equality. There is this inconvenient stuff in the doctrine and the teaching of the great religions, which I think needs to be taken seriously, but if it is taken seriously, it will have to be taken seriously as a reproach, not only to secular, political inegalitarianism, not only to, to, to the explosive growth of economic inequality, but to what the churches have preached and taught on issues of inequality as well. That's not intended to be any sort of evasion any sort of evasion of the issue. If there are religious grounds for basic equality, then those grounds are going to have to be turned against some of the institutions whose job it was to purvey them. Um, and maybe it, we will conclude, for reasons that you have intimated, that following through these religious traditions on this issue is not worth the candle. We will be better off just struggling for a secular, a secular view. Although secular systems of thought have not necessarily had much greater success in avoiding the inegalitarian um, aspect. Often, just one more thing, Malcolm, often people bring their inegalitarianism to their religion rather than take it from their religion. I know we have a question there. Tom, hello. Yes, my name, my name is Paul Tett. I'm afraid this is, a, this is a Gifford 101 question, but I don't think I understand the meaning of the word dignity in the context that you're using it. Um, I wonder, so I wonder if you could explain it a bit more. Yes. Um, and as a follow-up, is it a term that you would apply to a zombie? And by that I mean a philosophical zombie. I'm sorry, is it a term I would apply to a... To a, a zombie. And I, I'm not talking about the characters in The Walking Dead, I'm talking about the philosophical concept of zombie. That is a, a person who appears to be human but lacks consciousness. 
Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Yes, I, indeed. Um, so the idea of dignity is an idea of uh, special is the idea of special status attaching to a being. Um, long ago, we would suppose that there was a special dignity associated, well, we still suppose a special dignity associated with a judge or a queen, a special dignity for the principal, okay. separate dignity for his professors, for his visitors, for his students, that there were, the dignity represented status associated with rank. Human dignity which I think is the, is, is the real point you want me to focus on, uh, is associated with a, a view that welled up from ancient times in parallel with the notion of hierarchical dignity, that there, never, there, there was a special rank of beings, namely humans, who in the whole of creation had special standing and special considerability and special rights. So I do think of it as, as operating in our discussions to mark a certain status, which could be another way of making sense of a cluster of rights and entitlements and considerability. Um, when we talk about human dignity, and I've been uh, in a way talking about that throughout these lectures, I've been thinking that it's going to be the status applies to people in virtue of certain facts about them. And many of those facts concern uh, consciousness, um, reasoning, free will, love, and of course, moral life. So those who attributed dignity to the human person thought that these conscious capacities are very important in the life of a person. Now, forgive me, I'm not gonna say anything about zombies. Um, but it's true that humans live their lives over 70, 80, 90 years. We are asleep for a third of that time. We, uh, you know what I mean? We, we, we are in comas, we are uh, in infancy. The dignity has to be associated with the whole life, with the story of the whole life. And when we say that this or that is an affront to the human dignity of this or that person, we say this human life is not being treated with the proper respect that's commanded. And that respect would be due to... So if you kill somebody while they're in a coma or sleeping, it's an affront to human dignity even though there was no consciousness flaring up and grounding that dignity at that moment. So again, part of this will be talked about on on Thursday. So we've had a wonderful lecture and that's really and some really uh, wonderfully uh, lucid and inspiring answers to some really excellent questions. So uh, let's applaud Professor Waldron again. Thank you very much. Timothy.